we have a special in-house guest speaker this morning. Uh, Brother Gary Larson is going to be bringing the word this morning. Come on, will you put your hands together for Gary? Gary is the author of two books and he is in the process of working on his third book. And one of the things that I love about Gary is, uh, Gary is the epitome in my mind of a Berean believer. If you know anything about Berea, uh, it was noted in Acts that they carefully searched and examined the strict scriptures to know that which is true. And that is Gary. He is a biblical scholar in my mind. He loves the word of God and he's got a tremendous insight uh, from the beginning to the end. So will you guys once again put your hands together and welcome Gary Larson as he brings the word this morning. Well, before I begin, I'd like to uh, thank a few people. First of all, I'd like to thank the pastors of our church for inviting me to speak today. I appreciate that. Um, I'd like to especially thank Millie for proofreading my book. And she found a lot of grammatical errors and things like that in it, which helped a lot. And I'd like to thank Betty. Coolidge and Michelle Garrett for helping to promote the book through uh, online things, through Facebook and so on. And uh, this is a, what the book looks like. And um, it turned out to be longer than I had anticipated. But uh, anyway, it's my second book. And I'd like to say a little bit about how this book got started because it had sort of an unusual beginning to it. One day in May of, when was it, 2014, <laughs> I was sitting at home with my wife, I was sitting in my favorite easy chair, my wife was sitting on the couch, and all of a sudden the Spirit of the Lord came upon me. And I began to have a revelation of the glory and majesty and tremendous thing that it was to be a son or daughter of God. And afterwards, I couldn't really put it into words. I had seen it. I had a glimpse of it. Another brother that I related this to called it a glory glimpse. <clears throat> but after studying the Word and meditating, now I had to complete my first book before I could do this one, but I had this in the back of my mind all that time. But after a, a certain amount of studying and praying, I was able to eventually put together uh, pretty much of what I had, had uh, discerned during that experience. What we're going to talk about this morning is drawn from, in part from chapter 6, part of chapter 6, and most of chapter 11. Chapter 6 speaks about what sonship is all about. We find a scripture in the first epistle of John that says, as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. So we are born of God. And because we are born of God, we are the children of God. 
And because of Jesus, of out of his fullness, we are able to receive grace upon grace upon grace. As he also says in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. But it's one thing to be a child of God. It's yet another thing to be a mature son or daughter of God. And so what we're going to be talking about here is some of the ways in which we can grow into mature sons and daughters of God. I want us to look next at a scripture drawn from Matthew chapter 5, verse 45 to 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor but hate your enemy. That's what the Pharisees believed. (laughs) Love your friends and hate your enemies. Okay, but Jesus said, but I say unto you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Here is a mark of sonship, a mark of mature sonship. Can you love your enemies? Well, if you're depending upon human nature, I would say no. (laughs) But if you're depending upon God, I say yes. As a matter of fact, Peter says in the beginning of his second epistle that we are called to become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Partakers of the divine nature. Now that may seem impossible to you, but he wouldn't have written that if it were not possible. And so Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes the rain to fall on the evil and the good and sends uh, to the right, as well as the righteous. And to those who have loved you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? So the tax collectors love those who love them. But sons and daughters of God will love those who hate them. They will pray for those who despitefully use them. They will return blessing for curses. Now we want to look at an example of a man who is and was a mature son of God. His name is Stephen. You may remember Stephen is the first Christian martyr. Stephen was a part of that original church in Jerusalem. He was one of the, shall we say, deacons that was chosen to assist in the distribution of food and necessities to the people in the church. Stephen began to preach to people who were in the so-called synagogue of the freedmen. And they came against him, and they tried to refute what he was saying. But Stephen moved in mightily in the gifts of the Spirit. And they could not refute him because of the wisdom by which he spoke. He spoke by the wisdom of God. So what they did was they brought some people in to make false accusations against him. And he was put on trial. 
and he was eventually stoned. Now, what does it say about Stephen? This is in Acts chapter 7, verse 56 through 59. He, Stephen, said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Do you know that the law recognizes the last words of a dying man to be truth that can be used in a court of law? If the policeman hears what he says, so-and-so killed me, that policeman can go and testify in the court of law and it will be received as truth. Now this man as he was dying, prayed for those who were murdering him. And he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Did that make an impression upon some people that were there on that day? What about the young man named Saul? Do you know who he is? He's later known as the Apostle Paul who wrote about half of the New Testament. Wow. This man was tremendously in, in, tremendously awakened as a result of what he saw in Stephen. He saw all the miracles, but he still purposed to kill Stephen. But when he saw the love of God manifested through this man, that made an impression upon him that he could not forget. And so we will find that to be true today. If we are able to move in the agape love of God, people will be impressed by that. And what is the agape love of God? Many people say, well, it means that we accept people unconditionally. Certainly that's part of it. But there's more to it than that. There's more to it than that. Because here, Jesus said in the scripture we quoted from Matthew chapter 5, that we're called to love our enemies. <clears throat> and this is something that cannot be pulled out of the well of human nature. It has to be arising as a result of the working of God through the Holy Spirit. Right. To move in agape love means also that we're like Jesus. It means that we're servants and not lords. It means that we're willing to lay down our lives to help others to become what God wants them to be. And Jesus washed the feet of his disciples and gave a new commandment 
to his disciples saying, even as I have loved you, love one another. So, sacrificial, it, agape love is sacrificial. And we see that in Stephen. He was willing to stand for the truth, even if it meant his death. Now, I want us to understand the greatness of God's grace that has been extended to us. And to, for a comparison, I want to consider the experience <coughs> of another person, a man in the Old Testament, a man that Jesus himself said was a righteous man of God. And this man is Zechariah, the son of Jehodiah. We're going to read here from 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verse 20 through 22. Now what had happened here was that Joash became king when he was a young man. And he was tutored by Jehodiah the priest. But things changed when Jehodiah died. Jehodiah died at well over 100 years old, but nevertheless, everything changed, even though he had been, Joash had been tutored by Jehodiah. Jehodiah had a son named Zechariah, and we want to read about this. God sent prophets to warn Joash, and they wouldn't heed the prophets. Instead, he turned aside to the men that were causing him to stumble in the ways of the Lord. So it says here, Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehodiah, the priest. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing Jehodiah correctly, but um, I don't think anybody really knows here how to pronounce it correctly. <clears throat> and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has also forsaken you. So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king, they stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. See a similarity here between him and Stephen? Thus Joash, the king, did not remember the kindness which his father Jehodiah had shown to him, but he murdered his son. And as he died, he cried, here's the last words of that man. May the Lord see and avenge. Now, remember, Jesus said this man was a righteous man. When he was prophesying the judgment that was going to come upon Israel, it happened later in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem. He said the sin of every righteous person from righteous Abel to Zechariah shall be required. The blood of all these men shall be required from this generation. Now why is he talking about Zechariah being the last. Well, you see, the Hebrew Bible was organized 
at that time with Genesis as the first book, but 2 Chronicles was the last book. <coughs> now, of course, our Bible is not, recognized, not organized that way at all. But nevertheless, we see the difference here. And we need to understand that because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, that we have a greater grace towards us, directed towards us, than anybody in the Old Testament. And Jesus said, among those born of men, the greatest was John the Baptist, but he who was least in the kingdom is greater than John. Now, I think that is greater in potential rather than actuality. But we need to understand that there is a greater grace that has been given to us, and we are able to walk in agape love. We are able to become partakers of the divine nature, as Peter says in his second epistle. Now, how do we grow? In my book, I've focused primarily on two ways in which we grow. <coughs> the first way is understanding what Jesus has done for us, understanding the finished work of Christ. And by the finished work of Christ, I mean whatever happened between the cross and the throne. Jesus died on the cross, then he was buried, then he buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. He was raised on the third day. He then, 40 days later, ascended into the heavens, and he sat down at the right hand of God. This is the finished work of Christ. From the cross to the throne. The second, which we don't have time to get into today, we may have trouble getting through all we have here today. The second is the present working of the Holy Spirit. So there are, there are two things involved here. The finished work of Christ in our faith and confidence in what Christ has done, developing faith and confidence in what Christ has done, coming to be established in what he has done for us and who we are in him, and the present working of the Holy Spirit. Okay? To begin understanding what Christ has done for us, we recognize <clears throat> that there is a word that the Apostle Paul uses over and over and over again. He uses this in Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, maybe others. It's the word in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, we're going to find two things that mean or determine what he means by being in Christ. The first one is that we are one spirit with him. And we find a scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, that says this. The one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. To be in Christ is to be in union with Christ. Now we ask, we may ask ourselves at this point, is there an alternative to being in Christ? Can you be in something else? Yes! As a matter of fact, all of us started out in something else. And there's a scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
verse 22, that explains this. This is the alternative to being in Christ. <clears throat> but now Christ has risen from the dead, become the first fruits of those that slept. For by man came death, by man came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. So the alternative to being in Christ is to be in Adam. Now you don't want to be in Adam. <laughs> you shouldn't want to be in Adam. <laughs> Even though most of the world is still in Adam. This means that when we started out, when we were born, we were born of our first birth. We were in Adam. We shared what Adam had. And what Adam had was bad. Because Adam had rejected the covenant of God. And that's brought out for us in Hosea chapter 6. You see, God originally created Adam and Eve in the image and likeness of God. And he gave them dominion. Dominion over the earth. But they did not know the difference between good and evil. So how do they find out the difference between good and evil? Well, they had to go ask God, is this good or is this bad? Well, God told them, <clears throat> there's one tree here that I don't want you to eat. That is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the serpent deceived them, and they chose to eat of that tree. And all of a sudden, they knew the difference between good and evil. But now they could be independent of God. They would not have to rely upon God to tell them what is good and what is evil. They could go their own way. They could do their own thing. And so what we need to see is the sin of Adam is really the sin of apostasy. Because it means breaking the covenant that God had established with them, the covenant of works. Turning aside from God as the source of all knowledge and wisdom, they decided to make it on their own, to be independent of God. And unfortunately, the truth is that all of Adam's descendants after that began with the same nature, including all of us originally, by our first birth. As a result of Adam's sin, death entered into the world. Paul categorizes it as the law of sin and death. Therefore, as through the one man Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sin. That is Romans 5.12. Now we need to understand something. And... Um, The person that really says it like it is, and that I quoted from in my book, was Watchman Nee. And it used to be back in the days, everybody read Watchman Nee. Not so much anymore. But I would highly recommend that you read his book, The Normal Christian Life. 
It is very, very good, very enlightening, very helpful. And what he says is, we sin because we were sinners. But we seem to have the idea that that because we have sinned, we are sinners. But rather, we start out as sinners because of what Adam did. And because of our legacy from him. We sin because we started out as sinners. I know I did in my life. I don't have any question about it. But it all led me into a whole bunch of mess. And then I realized, hey, I need Jesus in my life. I need to be born again. I need to become a new person because where I am now is just leading me into worse and worse and worse. So there is a second birth, the new birth, by which we become new men and women in Christ. And by doing that, we need to understand that we have moved out of Adam and moved into Christ. We're no longer, if we're born again, we're no longer in Adam, we're in Jesus Christ. Here's another scripture. Through one man Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even though through the obedience of the one Christ, the many will be made righteous. Romans chapter 5 tells us that whatever Adam did, as bad as it was, it was more than wiped away through what Christ did. More than wiped away. Amen. He says, speaks of one of the key words in Romans chapter 5 is much more. What we have in Christ is much more than what we lost in Adam. Another scripture that speaks about the transition that takes place in our life when we're born again is in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Hey, we've already been translated. (laughs) Not up to heaven, (laughs) as we will be at the end of, of days, at the second coming of Christ. But we've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness. And who rules over the kingdom of darkness? The devil. And we have been translated into the king kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. How does this translation take place? Here he's describing something that we have experienced. He's talking about something that is tangible. He's talking about something that's experiential. But the key word here is we have redemption. We have redemption. And the way in which we are translated out of Adam and into Christ is through the finished work of Christ. I want to read here from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. I like this verse because it's a definition. I like definitions. I don't like to have ambiguity. I like things to be stated clearly and plainly. And here the Apostle Paul is giving a definition of what 
of what the gospel is. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, lest you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he goes on to list people who witnessed his resurrection. So he's talking here about the finished work of Christ, the death of Christ, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension to the right hand of God and enthronement at the right hand of God. Now, there is something about the death of Christ on the cross that's very important for us to understand. Because God had a mystery concerning the work of the cross. He did not reveal what was really going to happen when Jesus died on the cross, when he was buried, when he was raised up. It was not revealed. It was a historical event. But even the apostles didn't understand what had happened. They thought everything was lost. But God had a plan. He had a plan. He had a hidden wisdom. And this hidden wisdom was revealed after Jesus was raised from the dead and after the apostles and all the others had received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And there's a scripture in Romans chapter 16. It's actually the concluding verses of Romans that talks about this mystery. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but is now manifest and by the script manifested by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to the nations, leading to the obedience of faith. After Jesus was raised from the dead and after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the scripture says that God revealed the mystery to his apostles and prophets so that they might make it known to the church. And the mystery is what happened when Jesus died. What happened when he was buried? What happened when he was raised from the dead? What happened when he ascended to the right hand of God? Now, the main reason, I believe, as to why he did not reveal the mystery to them was because if he did, Satan would never have taken the bait. As it says in, in I believe it's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, <clears throat> if the rulers of this world knew what they were doing, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. This was the biggest clangor that Satan ever dropped. But it wasn't long before he discovered that he had made a terrible mistake. And so all of his minions, all of his minions and henchmen were gathered together to try to hold Jesus down under the dominion of the last enemy, which is death. But as we sing sometimes on Easter Sunday, up from the grave he arose with a mighty Amen. victory o'er his foes. Amen. 
He beat them all. He beat the devil. He beat all of their henchmen. He scattered them. He made a public display of them, of their weakness and inability to hold him into the tomb. A great victory was won. And that victory is won for you, as well as for Jesus. And we're going to talk about that very shortly. <clears throat> now, what we need to understand is that when Jesus died, we died with him. When Jesus was buried, we were buried with him. When Jesus was made alive, we were made alive with him. When Jesus was resurrected, we were resurrected with him. When Jesus ascended into the heavens, we ascended with him. When he sat down on his throne, we ascended with him and sat down on the throne with him. And to top it all off, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Do you believe it? You cannot enter into this victory until you believe it and until you confess it. <clears throat> now, I found 14 verses to confirm what I've said. And I've listed it in chapter 11 in my book. I'll just read one here, but this one is a good one. And this is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all. Therefore, all died. And he died for all, that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. No longer in the Adamic realm. No longer in the old creation. Jesus died as our substitute, yes. Paul mentions that when he says what one of the things he held fast that was preached to us was that Christ died for our sins, that they might be forgiven. Christ died as our substitute. But we also need to understand that Christ died as us. He died as our representative. <clears throat> he died as our representative. And that's what this scripture is saying. I want to read a scripture now from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, again, verses 45 through 49. So it is also written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, the second is from heaven. As is the earthly, so are those who are earthly, and as the heavenly, so is those who are heavenly. But we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. And here Jesus is referred to in, by two names. One, the last Adam. Second, the new man. The second man. So what he's saying here is that when Jesus went to the cross, the entire Adamic race went to the cross with him. 
And when he was raised from the dead, we were raised from the dead with him and entered into a new creation. We were taken out of the old creation and put into a new creation. We were taken out of the old man and put in the new man. Now, this leads us to a very famous scripture that we should all memorize and we should all confess regularly. I believe in confessing what the word says. Believe it in your heart and confess it with your mouth. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 10. Therefore, if any man or woman be in Christ, he or she is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And all things are of God. Are you in Christ? Yes. Then you're a new creation. The old things that characterize your life in Adam should all pass away. And all things become new. And all of these things are God's doing. Do you believe it? When we get done, we're going to give you a chance to confess it. Now, in order to help us to understand these things, we need to give you a few examples. And I'm going to give you two examples here that will help us to understand, because these things are hard to grasp. Peter even says some of the things that the Apostle Paul says are hard to understand. So I'm going to give you two examples. First example, let's say you decided that you were interested in a particular house that was unoccupied, and you didn't know the status of the house. So you went down to the Franklin County Courthouse and you gave them the address and say to the clerk, I'm interested in this house. Well, I'm sorry, sir, that house doesn't exist. What do you mean that house doesn't exist? I just saw it half an hour ago. Well, I'm sorry, it's been condemned. And it won't be long before it is totally removed. Well, I don't believe you. I believe what I can see. But with a Christian, seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. First we believe, then we see. So a condemned house has lost its legal right to exist. But yet it's going to be there for a while before the wrecking crew comes out and destroys it and carries away all the pieces and parts. There is an example. Now I use this example because of a scripture the Apostle Paul uses in Romans chapter 3, excuse me, Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was to the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Sin is condemned. In your life, sin has been condemned as a result of what Jesus did. Can we grasp that? 
But we have to move away from what we see and we have to move away from what we hear and we have to move away from what we feel and we have to establish our belief on what the Word of God says. The Word of God says, I am dead unto sin and alive unto God as a result of the finished work of Christ. I want to give you a second example. This example is drawn from American history. <coughs> During the Civil War, the U.S. government exerted its power and influence over people in a way that had never happened before. I'm told that prior to the Civil War, the only time you ever encountered the federal government was when you went to the post office. <laughs> Would that it be so today. <laughs> But soon other things were added. Income tax to pay for the war. Recruitment. But recruitment was not able to fill the ranks. So they resorted to conscription, which is also known as the draft. And there was a man in the north one of the northern states that was drafted into the army. Now, it used to be they'd send you out a letter saying, greetings, you have been selected by your country. <laughs> really, that's how the letter began. <clears throat> but this man had a way out because the federal government followed the pattern that had always been used by the European countries. You could hire somebody to go and fight on your behalf, your representative. Now, we would probably say today, that's not fair. The, the rich man gets off the hook, but the poor man has to fight. Well, they followed where Europe was going. <clears throat> Even though it doesn't seem fair to us today. <clears throat> This man hired a man to represent him, his representative. And the man went into battle and fought, and after a few conflicts, he died. Well, it wasn't long before the federal government sent out a second notice to this man. Greetings, you have been selected. Now, I don't know how they phrased it back in those days, but back 50 years ago, that's how it was done. But this man said, well, you can't draft me, because I'm dead. You can't draft me, I'm dead. So he went and he hired a lawyer. Didn't hire another substitute or representative. He hired a lawyer, and the lawyer argued his case before federal court. And the court said, yes, you are legally dead, and you cannot be drafted. <laughs> Now, this is exactly the way it works with us. Jesus is our representative. We died through him. <clears throat> we were buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea through him. We were raised from the dead with him on the third day. We ascended into the heavens with him on the 40th day and sat down with him on the throne of God. Amen. Because he is our representative. He acts for us on our behalf. 
And the result of this is that all of our enemies have been defeated. Satan has been rendered powerless. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. And in chapter 15 of Colossians chapter 2, it says that Jesus scattered all of the powers and principalities and rulers and authorities when he was raised from the dead. <coughs> Remember, these are your enemies too. In the last few weeks, Betty and, and uh, <coughs> our brother over here, Caleb, preached on some things that we all deal with. Caleb said that most of the people in the United States, a large majority maybe, are dealing with anxiety. And Betty talked about dealing with fear. But I want you to know that Jesus has defeated your anxiety and he has defeated your, <clears throat> your depression and he has defeated your fears. He has defeated all of your enemies. You are a new creature in Christ. All things, all the old things have been passed away. You now are a new creature in Christ. All things are new to you because of what Jesus has done. <clears throat> Finally, we want to look at a scripture from Colossians chapter 9, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. <clears throat> but ye did not learn Christ if you heard him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put away or put off as concerning your former manner of life the old man that waxes corrupt in the lusts of deceit and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man. We have put off the old man, now we put on the new man. But God has given us a way to do this or exhibit this in a dramatic fashion. And this brings us back to the very first song that we prayed, that we sang today. Remember, the windows of heaven are open. I gave him my old tattered garment. And he gave me a robe of pure white. Now, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 9, also in a parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 4, what he's really talking about here is water baptism. And in water baptism, you confess with your actions what you believe. You confess what you believe. You confess that you've put off Adam, that you've put on Christ. Let me close with a quotation from a man named Clement of Alexandria. Here's a man that lived in the second part of the second century AD, the latter part of the second century AD in the city of Alexandria. <clears throat> he was one of the leaders of that church in Alexandria. 
And he wrote down and he described what happened in the baptismal ceremony. Now, these are people that had already confessed Jesus to be their Lord. But they immediately were baptized, at least as soon as possible afterwards. In the New Testament, they baptized people as soon as possible. Now, I don't recommend you take somebody out and dunk him in the Olentangy River because you might both get sick. <laughs> but find a way to baptize the person or get the person baptized that's come to the Lord as soon as possible. <clears throat> Here's what he said. He said that when the person showed up for the baptismal service, they would wear the oldest, dirtiest, torn outer garment that you could imagine. Now, in that time, they wore two garments. The inner garment was called the tunic. The outer garment was called a robe, or maybe if you were a wealthy Roman, a toga. So this person came in, and his outer garment was filthy rags. And then he got baptized. He got dunked in the water. And then when he came up, he took off that dirty, filthy, ragged <coughs> outer garment and threw it on the floor and put on a brand new outer garment that was spotlessly white to symbolize what Jesus had done for him. And he was confessing through that what Jesus had done for him, that he was a new creature in Christ, Amen. and that old things had passed away, and that all things had become new. Now, I'm not really used to preaching so much, so my voice is not holding up as good as I had hoped, but I want to lead us through a confession before we conclude. <clears throat> now you want to see the relationship between the first song that we sang and the, the uh, statement by Clement of Alexandria. It's the same thing brought up to modern day. Let us confess this together. I am a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away. And all things have become new. And all these things are of God. I am a member of the new creation. I am no longer a member of the old creation. I am no longer in Adam. Adam is no longer living in me. But I am in Christ. And Christ is living in me. Amen. I think this is a good stopping point for me. I'm sorry I can't go till three in the afternoon, but I'm not used to speaking <laughs> because of COVID. I haven't had many opportunities to speak of late, but I hope that will change soon. Amen.